Good morning, Midland Free. Good morning. Hey, my, thank you. Yeah, I heard that back there. My name is Pastor Jeremy. Welcome here. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today. I want to start today's sermon with a little song, not by singing it, but by saying it. And in saying it, I also have to say before it a bit of a disclaimer. This is an illustration, okay? So I am not condoning the theology or philosophy of life within the context of this art form or communication. But the point of this is to get your mind to a place where you can easily absorb the word of God this morning. So the song I'd like to bring to your attention is entitled, People Are Crazy. Does anybody know that song? Yes, the the four or five of you that laughed do. This is a song by the country music artist, Billy Currington. And the chorus goes like this. It says, God is great. Fear is good. People are crazy. There you have it. <laughs> The simple and enduring philosophy of the country way of life. God is great. Fear is good. And people, well, oh, they're just crazy. And what's interesting about this song, and I think what makes it funny is in part, it is true. No doubt all of us have felt that way at some point in time. And when we think about it, what the song does well is it, it place is accurately identifies the problem. It places it on the table before us that there is something wrong with humanity. There's something within us that causes us to act in an illogical way. We do things that don't make sense. I have issues. You have issues. We've all got issues and all our issues together make a big mess. It doesn't always work. We don't get along. Things turn out wrong and we sort of scratch our heads and we reach for solutions and we try to get reconciliation and we try to find peace. But at the end of the day, we fail. And so I guess, according to Billy, the only thing to do is sit at the bar, have a few drinks and laugh about it. Or perhaps there's another way. Ephesians chapter two today is actually going to give us three ways to find peace, genuine resolution with God, with others and with ourselves. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us how to find peace. That there actually is a way to find peace in this crazy messed up world. With God. With others. And with ourselves. Now before we jump into that passage. Like the song. I also need to give a bit of disclaimer. Not because I don't believe the passage. But because the passage is set in a very specific cultural context. What's going on there is very specific to those people groups at that time. And so initially, if you read it, you may kind of scratch your head and go, I have no idea what's going on here. But what's interesting about it, as is true with everything in God's word, even though the context or the culture is different, the message is still the same. So the message that I deliver here at Midland Free, hopefully could be just as easily delivered over in South Sudan to Tammy Johnson's class. The message that we promote as Christians is not culturally locked and it shouldn't be culturally biased, but instead it should be clear and communicate universally the same thing across all platforms. 
So in this context, let me give you a little heads up about what's happening here. That way, when we read it, you won't go, wow, that's weird. But essentially what it is, is this, is there are, in the Jewish mindset, there are only two groups of people. When a, when a Jew approaches the world in this context, he says, there are Jews and there's non-Jews. That's it. That's the separation between all the people groups in the entire world. You're either in or you're out. It's not like the United States of America where we have all these hyphens that set us in all these different subgroups or categories or whatever else. Instead, they're just like Jew or non-Jew. So more than likely, unless you're Jewish, probably most of us here in this room today fit into the category of non-Jew. And that would make us what's called a Gentile or a different nation. And for the Jewish people, what happened to them is based on this distinction on their physical, biological, hereditary relationship to Abraham, who received the promises of God, they thought they were something special. But they really should have read their history a little bit more closely because what they would have learned if they did would say, it's not because you are special that God chose you. It's actually the exact opposite. It's one of those but God verses. It's a place that shows his tremendous grace where he picks this people group, this idol worshiper from the middle of Babylon, from ancient Ur, and says, hey, I'm going to bless the world through you. Not because of anything you've done or not because you're special. In fact, you're the least. But because you're the least, I'm going to choose you and bless everybody else through you. But they kind of forgot that. And what happened instead is through the, um, their history, they began to build up all these traditions. And the traditions are based on the things that God gave them. But those became sources of pride. Like, we have this that nobody else does. We're special. Look at what we've got. They don't have that. And they had all this stuff that in some sense was legitimate. For example, they had the covenants or the promises. God came to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He gave them a promise. He came to David. He gave them a promise. And these covenants or these agreements that God gave to them are special. It's something that God will do and he will fulfill. And so they have those. Not only do they have the covenants, but they also have the sign of circumcision. They have a sign that seals the covenant. They have the law, which is a provision to sort of keep them in the acceptable boundaries. And they have the temple, which is a place for them to meet with God. So these special things. And they look at it and they say, we're special because this reality is, no, no, God is special and he gave you this because of his love. So what happens is when Paul talks to the people in Ephesus, this church is largely Gentile. They're non-Jewish. And so what he's going to do is he's going to paint a before and after picture. And he's going to say to them basically, hey, before Christ, Jesus, your lives were in a bad way. But after him, look how much better they are. Before, after. So he starts out with a before picture and the things he lists are what we just talked about there. The special privileges that only the Jewish people had. And so in verse 12... The apostle says this in the before picture. He says to the Gentiles living in Ephesus, remember that at that time you were separated from the Messiah. That's the Christ, the Jewish promised Messiah. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, the nation of Israel. You couldn't get in because you weren't a Jew. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You didn't have the covenants. And as a result, 
you are having no hope in us in the world. Now, I just said a funny word there, but I think some of you, if you're following along in the text, may have picked up on it. Study of God is the word that we call what? Theology, exactly right, because theos is God. And in the Greek language, just for some fun, someone told me they liked the Greek last week, so now I'm just going crazy. I'm going to use it all the time. Um, the, the Greek word for God is theos, so you have theology, study of God. And in Greek, when you put an alpha or an A before something, it negates it. So if you're amoral, you have no morals. If you are without God, and theos is God, what would you say that is? Atheos, which is also known as an atheist. Exactly right. So if you are an atheist, welcome here. We're talking about God. We believe in God. But I want to show you something very specific about your belief system. And I want to show you something very different about ours. As an atheist, one of the things that this text says is that you are without hope. In our lives, as a pastor and as a person, we've been to a lot of funerals. And we almost inevitably, after every funeral, come away saying the same thing. I have no idea how people without God do that. I have no idea how they lay someone in the ground expecting never to see them return ever again, having no hope. As a Christian, we believe that just like Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, so too will we die and be raised we have hope we believe in god and we think there is a better future but if you're without that where's your hope i wonder how do you get by i don't know here in this passage paul is painting that very stark picture he says look you're separated from the messiah you're alienated from israel you're strangers to the covenants you're without god and you're without hope there is no hope in that case just live and let live and die This is a problem. And going to the bar and having a few beers and laughing about it will not solve it. And what we see is this. Here's the illustration is that there is a giant chasm between humanity and God. A huge gap. Now I'm putting up an illustration so you can sort of visualize it. But there's actually no way I can do this because that gap is infinite. If you have an infinitely holy God One single offense is an infinite offense, thus eternal punishment. Doesn't matter if you've broken God's perfect law, then you are falling short of him and there's no way to get there. And so we illustrate this in a very simple way just to show you humanity is on one side and God is on the other. And despite all of our attempts, there is nothing that is strong enough or good enough or will do what it needs to be done in order to get us Across that gap. So here we are without God, without Messiah, and without hope. But, but, do you remember last week when I said I love all the really big buts in Scripture? My kids did pick up on that part of the sermon as I predicted. So the other day I had to print off a bunch of verses and I just had them read those verses until they stopped joking about it. So, okay, here's another one. Read this one. But here is one, another but God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, says this, But now, 
Even though you were aliens, even though you were strangers, even though you're cut off and there's this infinite gap that you cannot cross, but God. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once really far away, infinitely far, have brought near. So near you don't even realize it yourselves. By the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus' blood, listen to this carefully. Jesus' blood is the currency that pays for our sins. Jesus' blood is the currency that pays for our sins. If you imagine a bargaining table, what happens is God sits down and we're on the other side and he says, okay, pay up, you owe me. You owe me big time. You owe me infinitely. In fact, one single sin is an infinite offense, so what are you going to do? We're sitting there looking at him, and indeed, we're in debt in a major way. But fortunately for us, there's a mediator, there's a negotiator, and there's somebody else that sits down on the table and says, you know what? I got this. Hold on a second. And they pull out the giant briefcase, and it's filled with $100 bills, and they lay it on the table and say, look, I'll cover it. It's okay. I have enough to pay for any debt they had. That's what Jesus' blood is, not just for me, not just for you, but for anyone in the entire world who decides to accept him. His blood is so precious, it is so valuable, it makes diamonds and gold look like trash. It is enough to cover the sins of the entire world. Jesus' blood is more precious than all of our sins. His blood is more valuable than anything. It is so valuable. So he offers this as a payment to reconcile us with our debtor to even the accounts. And what happens then is the picture changes. The picture goes from a giant infinite gap to one that has now been bridged. And it looks like this. Humanity on one side, separated from God on the other, are now bridged or brought together through the atonement or the work of Jesus Christ that he did on the cross in which he spilt his blood and paid our price. That's what happens. And now there's a bridge. Now the gap is filled and now there's a way. And that is what happens. And when we ask the first question is atheist or is people or is anything else. And we say, how do we get to this infinite, almighty, holy, unstoppable God? The answer is Ephesians 2.14a which says this first go back there we go for he himself is our peace he himself is our peace how do we get peace with God Jesus Jesus this isn't some silly churchy answer that I'm making up that I just want you to go away saying Jesus 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 this is true this is more true than anything you will ever hear all week long This is the most possible true thing I can say to you is that Jesus is the only way to God. There's nothing more true than that. Jesus is the only way to God. And so if you come here this morning and you haven't accepted Jesus as your savior, you need to be really clear about something. I am telling you there is no other way. There is no other name under heaven by which people can be saved other than the name of Jesus. So what that means is this, God forbid you walk out of here today and you slip on the ice and you fall back and you hit your head. 
terrible accident. No one predicted it, but your time has come. Bang, you're standing there before God in that moment. He sits down at the table with you and he says, why should I let you a sinner into heaven? What right do you have? How are you going to make up with me? Do you have an answer? What would you say? Well, I, I went to the funeral, then earned. I paid my taxes and loved my wife and pretty good person. You know, we're American. We salute the flag and pay our taxes. And is that enough? I actually had somebody tell me once when I asked them that question, they actually told me I bring pies to the funeral dinner. I is everything I could do to not let my jaw hit the floor. You, you think God is going to let you into heaven because you brought a pie to the funeral dinner? And yet, our greatest actions are no better than that. Well, I gave away all my money. <laughs> not enough. Well, I sacrificed my life for my country. I'm sorry, thank you, but it's still not enough. There is one thing and only one thing only that you can count on when you're standing before God, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. If you don't have that, you've got nothing. You are empty and broken and without. We got issues. Drinking beer won't do anything about it. Look, the only thing that will bridge that infinite gap between God and man is the blood of Jesus. You have to have that. If you don't have that today after the service we're going to have pastors and elders and Stephen's ministers right here and you can come down and ask any one of them how do I get that and they will give it to you for free we're not selling we're giving the greatest thing we have Jesus if you're off that ass, if you are without him you need hope I need hope we need hope how do I get peace with God Through Jesus. Number one. Number two, how do we get peace with others? Perhaps you're a Christian and you say, okay, I I think I got that, Pastor. Wish I would have brought a friend today, but I got that. Bring one next week. Um, But there's another question we run into, and it's not just peace with God, but it's peace with our fellow people. Sometimes that seems like a lot harder than getting peace with God. Because while God's perfect and he makes up for our lack, none of the rest of us are. And we all make mistakes. So we take my issues, your issues, we throw them in a pile and we got problems and there's no resolution. And as it turns out, the slide looks just the same. There's this gap. Here's a picture. And we're standing on one side. And there's another person standing on the other side. How are we going to do this? Well, I don't know. Maybe I'll go to a conference. Maybe I'll get some new um, conflict resolution skills. Perhaps I'll learn my personality type and I'll learn their personality type. When I figure out all things that's wrong with them, I'll know how just to relate. And then I'll say all the right things and do all the right stuff and listen in the right way. For the first time in my marriage, then we'll have success. And things will be just right. 
And I'm not playing down on those things totally because they are of value. But I want you to see they're not enough. Why do you think they have conferences every year? Yeah. Because this couple skipping through the grass, holding hands and smiling only lasts for a little while. And then you got to do it again. It's hard work living with broken people. But the thing is about that previous slide, go ahead and put that up one more time, please. You know, if you got that gap and you say, okay, we're going to fill it. We're going to put in a personality profile on top of that. I'm going to win Dale. I'm going to read Dale Carnegie's how to win friends and influence people. I'll get my people skills like a plus. And then I'll put in some personality stuff and I'll learn how to say, and not, but I'll learn how to listen and ask open-ended questions. And maybe that'll be enough to help me walk over the Grand Canyon to see the other side. But you know what we find? It's not enough. In fact, this for me was the single most exciting thing I discovered in this text all week long. Every week I get another special nugget. The Lord is gracious to give And I see his word and it's beautiful and it's opened up anew and afresh every time. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. That's the amazing thing I ever learned. Next week I'll come back. That's the most amazing thing I ever learned. But here it is for this week. This is about the most important thing I have to say today. Is this. Same thing that bridges the gap between you and God. Guess what? That's what bridges the gap between you and me. The exact same thing. You see, I can forgive, but not that well. And you can look over some of my faults, but not all of them. Because I got more you haven't seen. There's all kinds of stuff going on there. And there's only one bridge that is strong enough to hold the weight of all of our sin. And that's Jesus. You need to bring him into that conversation. You need to bring him into that conflict. And I don't mean just like they come to you and say, Hey, you hurt my feelings. And you're like, Jesus, not like that. No, but instead what I mean is when they come in and they say, you've done something wrong in your mind. You're like, I know, I know. And Jesus, you know, I did something wrong and I'm embarrassed right now and it hurts and I don't like it at all myself and them pointing it out isn't helping so what do I do all of a sudden you're back at that table and you're waiting you're saying there's my debt I see it but I I can't even own it because it's so much you need someone to come in and say that's mine not yours and take it away and pay for it and then you can go across the table and say I'm sorry I messed up You're right. I was wrong. I blew it. Big time. And I can't even make it up to you. Like, well, I'll fix it. I'll buy you a new. That's not going to work. You have to say, I'm sorry. I blew it. And the only thing that can cover my sin right now is the blood of Christ. You don't even have to say that to them. But you got to say that to yourself over and over again until you can get to a place where you can actually resolve that issue. Because until you're in a spot where you're saying Jesus' blood covers it, Jesus' blood has got this, Jesus has got me, then you're going to be defensive. You're be putting up a wall, saying, no, no, uh-uh, but you, but they, but this, but that, and you can't. Because that wall is right there. You need something to break down that wall, make it possible for you to say, yeah, I can step over this. I can put my weight on this. 
This is enough to hold. I need the blood of Christ. I need the cross. So when you come into your conflict, what I'm asking you to do is leverage Jesus. Leverage Jesus. I know he's a person, and I'm not trying to play down upon him at all. But here's the thing. Imagine you've got a jar in the kitchen, and it's stuck, and it's stucker and stuck, and you've run water over it, and you've done all the tricks that you've just Googled, and you just can't get it open. Your hands are burnt, your teeth are gritted, and it's not coming. Eventually, what you do is you go find this giant lever thing, this can opener that gives you a lot more strength, and you pull and pop, that thing comes off. That's what I'm telling you to do with Jesus in your conflict. You need a cross. You can grab the cross. When you grab it, it might be a little bit prickly. But you got to know the blood is running down and that's the thing that's going to help. Grab it. Hold on. Man, is the only way to bridge the gap between you and her, him and them, me and you. Through the blood of Christ. That's your leverage for any conflict. I can't carry the weight of my sin. You can't carry the weight of your sin. I can't carry the weight of our sin. None of us can. You need something much stronger. You need the cross and blood of Jesus Christ. That's the leverage you need to handle any situation. Doesn't mean you magically fix it, but means it doesn't even mean you can take it. It means you can't. And you say to Jesus, Lord, you're enough to absorb this. You can absorb it. You can take it. You can take it. You can take it because I can't and I need you. Cover me. Cover me now. The blood of the cross is the atonement that covers us. That's how you get it. Leverage the cross. So, number one, first thing is how do you get peace with God? Through Jesus. Number two, how do you get peace with one another? Through Jesus. And number three, how do you get peace with yourself? Guess what? Through Jesus. Not a churchy, silly answer, but it's the deep, profound, eternal truth of God. The reality is this. We talk about peace with God, and he's perfect. He'll forgive us. We talk about people, peace with others. Well, they're a bit crazy, but Jesus' blood covers it. But how do I get peace with myself? Because one of the biggest barriers for me in conflict resolution is not necessarily what they did. But if I'm honest, it's what I did. Because I know what I did, and I don't like it. And it's the thing I do all the time, and I hate it. And I don't really appreciate them pointing it out. And I don't want to have to fess it up one more time. Because it just reminds me of how much I don't like myself. And there it is. Boom. Right in your face. So how do I get peace with that? The same way. Through Jesus. But here's what's interesting here. In some conflict situations. For reconciliation to take place. What's needed is a bridge. In other places. What's needed is a sledgehammer. You see, what happens here is the Bible uses terms like die to yourself or put to death. And they're really weird because we know the Bible is against actual suicide. So what is it talking about? Well, there's this thing that sometimes we refer to as a sinful flesh or the self or whatever. 
But we know that there's this part of us that resists what is good. And so what happens is for true reconciliation to take place, for you to receive peace, true peace that comes from God is not only constructive with a bridge, but it is destructive as well. True reconciliation requires not only construction, but destruction. And what I mean is that is the cross is what what I mean is this. The cross is the bridge, but it's also the sledgehammer. In the next part of this passage talks about something called the wall of hostility. Now the interpreters go all over the place and they say, okay, in that context, what was this? Was this the outer wall that separated the Jews from the Gentiles? Was this the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies that was torn when Jesus died upon the cross? Is this the law that separated the people from God? What is it? And they, you know, spend a lot of time talking about it. But at the end of the day, I don't think it's essential for you to come to a conclusion on that. Instead, what I think you need to know is there is hostility. There is a wall and it separates me from God and us from one another and even me from myself. I don't need a bridge to get to myself. I'm right here. I'm not separated from myself. But I do have problems within me, and those problems need to be broken down. We need the sledgehammer of the cross to crash down that wall. The one that prevents me from liking or accepting myself. The one that makes it hard to resolve conflict and admit we're wrong. We need to destroy that hostility that is within us. And that is what this next section does in verse 14. Reminds us again that Jesus is the answer to God, to others, and to ourselves. It says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down. There it is. He smashed it. In his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new person, one new humanity in place of the two, the former Jew and Gentile. Now we're all just the people of God. And so making peace, he might reconcile us both to God in one body. That's the cross. Sorry, the church through the cross and thereby killing the hostility. He killed it at the cross. What we could not, he did in his flesh. He put it to death. The nails in the cross are the nails in the coffin of our hostility. The nail in the cross put the nail in the coffin of death, of sin, of separation. Of all those consequences of sin that we can do nothing about. The infinite gap God destroyed. With one single and fatal blow. The death of Christ. So that no evil. However bad. Will ever win. Did you hear that? No evil. However bad will win. I've done some pretty bad stuff. I don't know if I can forgive myself. I don't know if they can forgive me. It's not enough. His blood is more precious, his sacrifice more effective, and his resurrection more powerful than all my sin. Yeah, well, okay, maybe not me. What about Hitler? 
He did some pretty bad stuff. I'm not saying Hitler is going to be in heaven. I'm not. But I'm saying this. Hitler doesn't win. His is not enough. He did the most horrible, terrible evil against the Jewish people that he could possibly think of. He doesn't win. What about Satan? I mean, you went from you, which is one thing, to Hitler to another. What about Satan? He's the worst there is. Satan, in fact, is, and he did the very worst he possibly could. There is no greater act of injustice anywhere ever than Jesus dying on the cross. You ask me the question, why do bad things happen to good people? I say they don't. Except for once. Only once. Jesus' death on the cross for nothing, yet for everything. Satan tried his very best. In the very moment when Satan killed Christ, God killed sin. The nail on the cross was the nail in the coffin. But not of Christ. Of us and our guilt and our shame. And the things that separate us from him, from one another, and from ourselves. He broke it down. He destroyed it. He obliterated it. For his blood is more precious and his sacrifice more effective and his resurrection more powerful than anything I've ever done. He will be resurrected. Sin doesn't win. Jesus wins. God is good. He's in control. And we will be resurrected. We have hope. We are not off the us. We are loved by theos so when that conflict or that thing or whatever comes up maybe tempted to run down the bar grab my buddies and have a few beers and laugh about it but i think i actually have a better solution than that and it's this if i were writing the country song which i'm not but it's fun so i'll try i think i would rewrite it like this i'd still call it people are crazy But the chorus would change in a few places. It would say, God is great. God's gifts are good. Not just whatever we like to drink, but everything that he gives us to shower upon us is good pleasure. Those are good. God is great. God is good. His gifts are good. People are crazy. I'm not going to fault them for saying that. We are crazy. But Jesus is our peace. There is a closing. There is a resolution. There's reconciliation. Jesus is our peace. Leverage that church. Leverage that in every single situation. He himself is my peace. I can't bear their sin. I can't bear my sin. I can't bear your sin. But Christ can. When that stuff comes up. Sure. Use all the tools you can come up with. But you start in the place of saying, Jesus is my peace. That's where it's at. And once I'm there, then I can engage with the other stuff. But until I am, I'm no hope. Nothing else will work. How have we been brought near? By the blood of Christ. To God, to others, and to ourselves. Father, we thank you. For your perfect work. Sending Jesus. Your only begotten son. To die for our sins. 
I'm so thankful, Lord, that he did what I could not, that he accomplished what we could not. He pleases you, and in him I am complete. He's the object of your infinite and eternal love. And in him, I experience that too. Lord, please give me the grace and strength that I need to face each and every day and every situation and do it well. No matter how strange or difficult or messed up it is, help me to remember that Jesus is my peace. In his name we pray. Amen.